0: And honestly, it's just going to be scratching the surface of an overall view of each at Calvary as it pertains to these things. And uh, if time permits, we will jump into uh, the beginning of chapter 1. But before we go there, I wanted to see. So if you have ever, uh, for whatever reason, not read Revelation or not wanted to study the book of Revelation, raise your hand. Go ahead. I know you're out there. Who's been hesitant to dig in and read Revelation? I see a few hands. Okay. Anybody want to share why? Go for it, Elizabeth. It's It's scary. Yeah. Somebody else? It's confusing. It can be confusing. Absolutely. It's... It's metaphorical, okay, so yeah, that makes, kind of contributes to some of that confusion perhaps, right? Okay, um, so here's, and you guys have hit on some of these things, it's hard to understand. The thoughts of wrath and judgment are scary, it makes us uncomfortable. Um, there's so much disagreement in what it means, you know, how could we ever know really what it means or, or some of the thoughts? And uh, also, in some of the studies I did, uh, it's about the future, so what, what relevance really would it have for me today? So hopefully, as we begin this journey and get through it, uh, we will resolve uh, some of those questions, some of those fears, maybe, that you have in your mind um, as we begin to study it. And, you know, we're going to see that it's not too difficult to understand, and that if we look at it in the right way, that it's not confusing. Uh, we're going to see that we can know what it means and that it has significant relevance for us today. And we're going to see that, yes, it is scary, but that's a good thing because it should motivate us. You know, fear can be a good thing if it's motivating us to, to make a choice or to make a right choice. So again, today is going to be a very surface-level look at eschatology, Now, Austin, because Austin is a lot smarter than me, Austin loves the word eschatology. Uh, I just call it end times because I'm a lot more ignorant than Austin is, and I don't really know what eschatology means, but he does. Uh, The study of the last things, that's what eschatology is. Uh, We're going to focus again on some foundational items. We're going to look at the book of Revelation, who's the author, when was it written, Um, and as well as, like I said, if we have time, getting into chapter 1. So we're going to ask and hopefully answer these questions today. What are some of the approaches that people take to interpret the book of Revelation, and which one is the right one? Who wrote the book? When was it written? How about this? When will these things happen? When will these things happen? Get out your calendars. I'm just kidding. We're going to take a very broad look, a broad view at when these things happen. We're going to look at some varying viewpoints, but again, we're going to focus on what we believe and teach here at Calvary. And if time permits, we're going to jump into the first few verses of chapter 1 and begin to dig in. So, let's look at some of the interpretive approaches to Revelation. And some commentators, some people uh, look at this and they categorize them as three, but the more I looked at it, uh, I, will, uh, I will call them four different things. I've labeled them historical, preterist, allegorical, and literal. That's not always the names that, that some scholars use. Uh, but these are the four real main ways that people interpret the book of Revelation, um, You know, as we talk about interpreting Revelation, and so here, I'm going to, Austin would call this hermeneutics. I would call it interpreting the scriptures. Uh, So there there you go. There's the smart view and the ignorant view. Uh, How we interpret the book of Revelation, how we interpret the Bible. If we take the wrong approach to interpreting Revelation, we will reach the wrong conclusions. And I'm going to submit to you that one of the reasons there's a lot of confusion. Surrounding the book of Revelation is because people take the wrong approach in interpreting it, and that makes the issue of interpreting a vital one. So first let's talk about the historical method, and that's pretty self-explanatory. That view looks at the, the book of Revelation mostly as a picture of events that have been occurring since Christ's death and that are even currently uh, uh, going on right now. The seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments, uh, they are events that have either already taken place or they are currently taking place. Now, in order to accomplish this, you have to take some pretty metaphorical or symbolic views of a lot of what's presented in Revelation. Now, this is a way that Martin Luther and a lot of the Reformers viewed the book of Revelation, In fact, in some of the things I read, Martin Luther believed that the Pope was actually the Antichrist and that the Catholic Church was Babylon, uh, based on a lot of the persecution that he was getting over his efforts there with the Reformers. Um, A big problem with the historical view is that every generation sees the book coming to a climax in their time, which means that it just keeps changing as time goes on. Um, it's always subject to change based on current events. The next I will mention is the Preterist Method, and some scholars kind of combine the historical and the Preterist views of interpretation. This, this method says that these events that are depicted in Revelation largely occurred during the first century, uh, and it's a picture of the conflicts that the early church had both with the Jews, with the nation of Israel, and the Roman Empire. And it sees all of these things taking place uh, during that time. You know, they spiritualize the second coming to, of Christ to occur around the destruction of the temple, which occurred in A.D. 70. And what's wrong with this is basically it eradicates any present and future significance. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's impossible that all of the things depicted in the book of Revelation have already happened. It's just, it's just not possible. So that brings us to the third method, and the third method is the allegorical. Uh, some might call this the symbolic view or a spiritual view of Revelation. And basically, this method sees everything in the book as strictly metaphorical. It's all allegory. It is not real things. It's not real events that have happened or real events that will happen. It's basically a story of the battle of good and evil, and that it's just meant as a picture of society. It's not a prophetic writing. They take the writing and they apply cultural and social factors of contemporary society to interpret the meaning. And you can already kind of see what's, where that's headed and what's wrong with that. The greatest problem is that the social and cultural factors are always changing. They're changing in every generation, even within generations. And so that's going to leave the interpretation to the mind of the interpreter. This is a bad way to approach interpreting not only the book of Revelation, it's a bad way to approach interpreting the Bible. So, some of these kind of get, and, and some people take different portions of all of these and kind of mishmash them together. And as it's already been pointed out, it's clear to see how that could bring about confusion about what this book really means, right? So that brings us to the last point, and that is the literal or what some call the futuristic method of interpreting Revelation. This is the method that we teach at Calvary. It's the message that I believe in the method. It's the most appropriate way to view the book of Revelation, because it's the method that we believe is the most appropriate way to look at the Scriptures as a whole. If we're going to interpret the Scriptures literally using the grammatical historical method, why would we want to approach the book of Revelation any differently? We don't. We want to use the same interpretive methods to interpret Revelation that we would use to interpret the rest of the Bible. The events depicted in Revelation should be taken literally, unless there is a contextual reason not to take them literally. Words should be taken at their usual, ordinary, customary meaning, just like we do with every other book of the Bible. And the meaning is determined by the grammar and by the historical considerations. The chapters 4 through the end of the book in chapter 22 depict real and future, not past or allegorical events. It is God's revelation to us of what is going to happen on this earth in the future as time comes to a close. So that is how we are going to be approaching this study over the next five plus weeks and, and on into the future. It's important to know the ground from which I'm going to be teaching from to help us understand. So we need to know all of this going in. So why is this the best approach? Why is the literal approach to Revelation, seeing these as future events, the best approach to take? God intended His Word to be understood. He intended it to be clear to us. And because He intended it to be clear to us, then we, can, we need to take it and look at it as the wor- that words have meaning, as I've already said. It meant the same thing 2,000 years ago as it means today. It's not constantly changing with the times and based on current events. The Bible has one meaning. All Scripture has one meaning with often many applications, but only one meaning. It can't mean different things to different people. It has one meaning. It can certainly have different application. Dr. David Cooper put it this way, When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Every word of Scripture, therefore, should be taken at its usual or ordinary meaning unless the facts of the the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths clearly indicate otherwise. In other words, it's only allegory if the grammar and the context and other Scripture point to it being allegory. And a lot of times, and we're going to see that in the book of Revelation, Revelation does contain symbols and allegory, but I believe what we're going to see in the, in the context is it's actually, it's telling us by the grammar that this is allegorical. When it's not telling us that, we take it literally. The words mean what they mean. And again, that's one of the reasons Revelation has a bad reputation of being complicated. It's because man has complicated it. We've taken all these crazy ideas about how to interpret it in different ways instead of just taking it at its plain meaning. Just because it's difficult to imagine doesn't mean that it's impossible, right? So, And as we get into uh, further on in the book, it's, we're going to read a lot of things that, yeah, wow, how is that even possible? What does that look like? Um, but it's depicting real events. Uh, man overcomplicates things by train, trying to make it match up with past or current events, it's harder than it should be. So if when we approach it with the view that things should be taken literally, unless it's clear that they shouldn't, we kind of take the complications out of it, and that's what that's the way that we're going to approach it. Um, it makes it a lot less complicated. Charles Ry- Ryrie put it very simply: Revelation was given not to mystify, but to clarify. It is a revelation. It's to make it clearer, not to make it more confusing. Okay. Wow, that's really small on that screen, a little bigger on that screen. So what are some of the foundational concepts, just as in terms of what we are going to believe and teach, and as we get through the book, this is kind of an overall understanding of some of the events that take place and what we believe about those things. We'll discuss these as they come up in a lot more detail So, again, today is just a real scratching-the-surface overview. Calvary teaches, and I believe wholeheartedly, in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And so, uh, what in the heck are you even talking about? Okay, the church, all believers that are alive on the planet at whatever time the rapture is going to occur are going to be raptured, are going to be caught up in the air with the Lord, and he's going to take us off the planet and to heaven. That will occur before the seven-year tribulation begins, okay? That is our belief. That is what we teach at Calvary. Uh, Those who are dead now, all the believers who have died before us, the Bible tells us they will rise first, and then we will follow them and be caught up with Christ in the air. What does that look like? I have no idea. But I'm excited to know. I'm excited to know. And that's the next thing that's coming. It is the next event that is going to occur on this timeline that we're in. There's nothing else for us to be looking for. The rapture is next. We read about this. Um, <clears throat> some of the passages are referenced there on your screen. There's um, in First 1 Thessalonians 1.10, uh, it tells us that Jesus will rescue His church from the coming wrath. He's going to rescue the church from the coming wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11, we read that the believers are not appointed for wrath. Believers are not appointed for wrath. And then there's a really interesting passage in 2 Thessalonians. Paul is writing to the church in 2 Thessalonians, and they are very upset. We read about this in 2 Thessalonians 2. And why are they upset? They're upset because they're under heavy persecution. They think they are living in the tribulation. They think they're living in the tribulation. Paul is writing to them, say, Don't be upset. You're not in the tribulation. Jesus didn't leave you behind. The rapture has not already occurred. So, if we think about this, again, with common sense, if Paul had taught them that the rapture would occur after the tribulation, would they be upset that they were in the tribulation? I see some head shaking. No, why wouldn't they be upset that they were in the tribulation if the rapture was yet to come? They'd be expecting it. It'd be something to look forward to, Right? exactly the fact the fact that they're upset tells us even though it doesn't state it clearly that somewhere in that between that first and second letter and paul did teach him in in uh, the first letter that the church would be raptured but the clear teaching of paul had to be that the church would be raptured before the tribulation otherwise there would be no reason for them to be upset does that make sense i'd never really thought about it that way until studying it uh, the last couple of weeks There would be no reason for them to be upset that they were in the tribulation unless Paul had taught them that the rapture came first. They're upset because they thought they missed it. Paul tells them, you didn't miss it. You're not in the tribulation. All of those things are still yet to come. Paul writes to the church in in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, um, referencing the tribulation and the rapture. And in Revelation 3.10, we see that God will keep us from the hour of trial that is coming for the world. So we see in these passages, we were not destined for wrath. God is going to rescue us from the wrath, rescue His church. He will keep us from that hour of trial. And one of the reasons people misunderstand this is because apparently they misunderstand the purpose of the tribulation. The purpose of the tribulation is God pouring out His wrath on sin. That is the purpose for the tribulation. Why would the church not need to endure the wrath of God for sin? Jesus Jesus has already endured the wrath of God on our behalf. Exactly right. If you are a born-again believer in Christ... Christ paid that penalty on your behalf. There is no need for the church to endure the wrath of God for sin because Christ has already endured it for us. That debt has been paid. It is finished. The wrath He's going to pour out is going to be on unrepentant man during the tribulation. And again, taking a literal view of the Scriptures, of the Bible as the whole, there is no other logical conclusion other than the church is raptured prior to the tribulation. Dwight Pentecost, who's written extensively on End Times Things, eschatology, he noted that every passage in the Scriptures that deals with the tribulation relates it to God's dealings with Israel. When the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, when they're talking about the day of the Lord... It is in relation to God dealing with Israel, not God's dealings with His church. Now, if you take the view, like some of our Reformed brothers and sisters do, and again, brothers and sisters, this is not a salvific issue, but if you take the belief that somehow the church has replaced Israel and that God's promises to Israel don't matter— that those are now promises to the church, which we don't believe. We believe every promise that God made to Israel that he will keep to Israel. Um, It's easy to see how you could mess that up. But God's going to deal with Israel in the tribulation. He's not going to deal with the church. And just in terms of timing, when does the rapture happen? And we don't really see the rapture in the book of Revelation. It's important to talk about We don't really see it. The rapture will occur at some point between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. That's when the church is raptured. That's about all we get from Revelation. So what happens after the rapture of the church? And that is when the seven year tribulation will begin. Seven years, and that's spoken of throughout the Old Testament, and the book of Daniel um, is a great place to go and read about a lot of these things. Uh, That seven year tribulation begins. And during this time, what happens? Well, we're going to see Antichrist, this man, this world leader, come to power during this seven year period. There's going to be a movement of peace in the world. That culminates with a peace treaty being made with the nation of Israel and the temple, the actual temple, being rebuilt on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Which, if you are a purveyor of world events at this time, is mind-boggling to think how that could even begin to be possible that the political unrest that exists between the Arab world and the nation of Israel, the fact that one of the holiest Muslim sites is where the temple needs to be, how does all this happen? That's a great story. I don't know how it happens, but God makes it happen. And the temple gets rebuilt, and they're actually making the sacrifices in the temple. What's interesting is um, there are movements underway right now as we speak in the nation of Israel uh, for the preparations— For the temple to be rebuilt. Uh, They have actually have fields where they are growing the crops that are needed to be offerings and where they're growing and raising cattle to be used as offerings. Priests are being trained in all of the things that the priests have to do in temple service and making the sacrifices. Um, It's pretty exciting stuff. They actually have rebuilt a lot of the tables and the altars. Um, that will go in the temple once. So there there are Jews right now making those preparations for the rebuilding of the temple, which is kind of exciting. Um, Now, something significant happens at this three-and-a-half-year period. So right in the middle of that seven-year tribulation, uh, there is a a second half, which is often referred to as the Great Tribulation, which is that final three-and-a-half of those seven years, Antichrist turns on Israel, and if you have seen or heard of the abomination of desolation, um, that is where Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped. Uh, he brings in uh, unholy sacrifices to be offered there, and instead of having peace with Israel, there begins to be a, an incredible persecution of the nation of Israel. They, they flee to the wilderness. God protects them there. We'll, we'll get chance, hopefully, um, I don't know, six, seven years from now, um, as we slowly walk through this, uh, we'll talk about those things. But that's what's going on in the Great Tribulation. It's during that time, if you know 666, the number of the beast, those who follow Antichrist will have to have his number. So, uh, which, which brings up a point, we don't have to worry about being microchipped or wondering, are we taking the the number of the beast. If we use a credit card, or if we do, if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to be long gone by the time anybody gets marked with whatever six 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 is. It doesn't. It's not going to apply to the church because we will have been raptured. Don't have to worry about it. There may be other reasons to worry about being microchipped, but it doesn't have anything to do with taking on the number of the beast. But we're not talking about that today. Um, And it's also during this time that there's a false prophet that is raised up that becomes kind of the chief cheerleader for the worship of Antichrist. He becomes Antichrist in every sense of the word. He is trying to be a substitute for Jesus. He wants to receive the worship that only is due Christ. This seven-year tribulation culminates with the return of Jesus. Don't confuse the rapture with the second coming of Christ. Those are two different events. Christ doesn't actually come back to earth during the rapture. He meets us in the clouds. He will return to earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's when the battle of Armageddon is, uh, it takes place and Satan and his demons are banished. And it's at that point that Christ establishes his reign on earth, the millennial kingdom, and what we will teach and what I believe is a literal 1,000 years, a literal 1,000 years. This is where we'll go off and explore some diverging views on that. So uh, there are three main views of this 1,000-year period, this millennium. The first of which is amillennialism, amillennialism. They, those that believe in this, and this is a lot of our Reformed brothers and sisters, Uh, Look at this as a non-literal 1,000 years. It's not really 1,000 years. It's just symbolic. One commentator summarized it this way. To simplify, amillennialism, easy for me to say, sees the first coming of Christ as the inauguration of the kingdom and his return as the consummation of the kingdom. So basically, we're in the millennium now. That's an amillennial view. When Christ came and died, that began the millennium. When he comes again, that will end it. So Christ's return is after this non-literal 1,000 years. Next is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism it means that Christ will return and, uh, at a, after a period of time, but not necessarily, again, a literal 1,000 years. His return doesn't precede the millennium, Again, it comes after. And I, again, a, a one commentator summarized it this way. Those who hold to post-millennialism believe that this world will become better and better, all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding, with the entire world eventually becoming Christianized. And after this happens, Christ will return. However, this is not the view of the world in the end times that the scriptures present. And can we all get an amen? Is there, any, is there anything about what we see going on today that makes us think the world is getting better and more Christianized? I don't see it. So again, Calvary would teach, and I would believe that in what's called pre-millennialism, and that is Christ return to the earth, kicks off. It precedes a literal 1,000 years where he will reign on the earth. Um, And again, I believe that is a logical conclusion of a literal interpretation of the scriptures in the book of Revelation. So, this thousand-year millennial period culminates with the final rebellion of Satan. Satan is unleashed uh, from where he is chained with his demons um, and he amasses a great army to come against Christ. Christ and His army, and the final battle takes place, and Satan is done away with forever, uh, and banished to the lake of fire. Um, which is important to to note here, because he's able to amass a great army. It's an indication that as people are being born during the millennium, not everybody's going to follow Christ. Even during this wonderful period that's unlike anything that we know now, you know, where Christianity is prevalent and you know, Christ is ruling and reigning, there will still be those who will not follow him and will war against him at the end and be defeated. Uh, it's then that the great white throne judgment takes place and anyone who is not a believer in Christ uh, will be banished to spend eternity in hell. Then the great news. It's at that point that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. This earth that we are on now will be remade into what it was intended to be. And we will spend eternity, I believe, on a, a, this planet. But this planet not looking like anything that it looks like now in its fallen state. Um, God will remake it new Um, into a perfect place where we will live with Christ forever. So that is a very rapid breeze through of some foundational concepts, and we may actually be spending longer there because we may be stuck on that. Can you advance it? Okay, hey, there we go. So who wrote the book of Revelation? When did they write it? Um, There's no strong, real valid evidence that anyone other than the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. The Apostle John, who wrote John's gospel and who wrote the three epistles that have his name. One of the main arguments against John's authorship is the fact that three times in chapter one, he identifies himself as John as the author. How is that different from his other writings? Yeah, in the, in the Gospel of John, he went to great lengths not to identify himself, right? He, was, he always referred to himself as the, the one whom Jesus loved. And he didn't really identify himself in his, his epistles. But yet here, he identifies himself not once, not twice, but three times. Now, scholars, men a lot smarter than me, will note that it was necessary and common for prophetic writings to identify the author. So that gives us a hint here. Because Revelation is primarily prophetic, telling us about the future, it was very important for the church, especially the early church, to know that the Apostle John wrote these things, because it would have given it great validity. And again, there's no real strong scholarship that would indicate anyone other than John wrote it. One of the big proponents against John's authorship was Dionysius, who was a believer in the third century. And one of, what's interesting is one of Dionysius's main arguments was that idea that John identified himself in this, this letter, but yet in his other writings, he never identified himself. But someone pointed out a, a flaw in his reasoning, and a big piece of that was Dionysius was a big proponent that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, what was, what's the, what's, who wrote, do we know who wrote Hebrews? Is the writer of Hebrews identified? No. Did Paul identify himself in his other letters? Yeah, just about every one of them. So Dionysius really contradicts himself by being a big proponent that Paul wrote Hebrews when that letter doesn't identify the author, yet that was his biggest criticism against John's authorship. And if you study that, Dionysius had uh, some ulterior motives in wanting to discredit uh, some of the meanings and things that were written um, in the book of Revelation, and so he took about to discredit John's authorship in order really to undermine the truths that were presented there. So we are firmly believing that this book was written by the apostle John. When did he write it? When did he write it? Uh, It was written probably in the range of 94 to 96 AD, and it would have been a period of time, uh, as John tells us in the text, when he had been exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, which is a rocky, very unpretty island off the coast of Greece. And basically, it was a penal colony. It was a prison. It was where they sent undesirable prisoners And what's interesting is the Apostle John was the only Apostle who was not martyred, who was not executed. And this is, so let me get out from behind the podium because this is extra biblical and this may or may not be true, but there are are some historical writings that suggest that the Emperor Domitian attempted to assassinate John, tried to boil him in oil. He was unable to. John lived through that. So because he was frustrated that he couldn't kill John, he sent him off to this island so he wouldn't have to see him. Well, what happened? When Domitian died, John was able to come back from uh, Patmos, and then he finished out his ministry, uh, ministering to the church at Ephesus. Um, So again, there's no real strong evidence uh, that this book was written at any other time than what is indicated. Uh, Again, so that would have been uh, in the late first century, 94 to 96. Why had John been sent to Patmos? What was the problem the emperor had with him? He was what? He was too real? Do you want to expand on that at all? He was a man of God. Yeah, he was. And and John actually tells us we could actually, there's a novel thought. Let's turn to Revelation 1 since that's kind of what we're talking about. John tells us exactly why. Um, In verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was being persecuted. He was sent there because he was a believer and a minister of the gospel of Christ. And the Roman emperor wanted nothing to do with that. So we had to get rid of him and send him off. All right, so let's talk about a very brief and broad outline of the book of Revelation. And the beautiful thing about it is that Jesus gives it to us in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. There, folks, is the outline of the book of Revelation. The things that you have seen would be the vision that preceded chapter 9, uh, verse 19 in chapter 1. The things that are are the condition and his writing to the seven churches that we see in chapters 2 and 3. And the things that will take place after this are chapter 4 to the end. And again, that is a very broad outline of the book. So, let's see. we got a few minutes. So we're going to jump right in. chapter 1. So I'm going to read, we'll look at these first three verses today, and this is where we'll pick up next week. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There in verse 3, we see the reason why it's very important to read this and to hear it and obey it, because there is a blessing promised. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and whose book is titled this chapter, The Revelation of John? The ESV does. Is there anyone who has a version that, that titles this book anything else? Revelation to, John. revelation to John. No, that's better than the Revelation of John, for sure. Yeah, that, I think that's, a, my opinion, very bad title. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, just like it tells us in verse 1. That word for revelation is apocalypse. The Greek is apocalypse or apocalypso. That's where we get the word apocalypse. When you think of apocalypse, what do you think of? Come on. on The world's on fire. Zombies. Zombies, the zombie apocalypse, yeah. Other. What do you think of apocalypse? Good thing, bad thing? Thumbs down, bad thing. Lots of thumbs down, bad thing. Yeah, well, you know, all an apocalypse is, is a revealing. It is literally an uncovering or an unveiling. Which again, back to the statement I read from Charles Ryrie, Ryrie earlier, God didn't intend this to be a mystery. This is not a covering, it's an uncovering. He is revealing himself. He is revealing himself as Jesus Christ. And that is what this book is. Jesus is the subject and the main character of everything that we see in this book. Jesus. It's a revealing of him. It's a revealing of what's going to happen when he returns to this earth. And the good news for us and the bad news for those that don't believe is that he is not returning as a humble servant. He is not returning as the lamb to be slaughtered. He is not returning, setting aside anything like we see in Philippians 2. He is returning in judgment to pour out the wrath of God against sin. That is the picture of Jesus that we're going to see in Revelation. He says that he's coming to show his servants things that must soon take place. And I thought that was key for us to think about this. What does it must soon take place mean? Well, the word must means these are things that are necessary, right, and proper. In other words, they are required as a means to an end. These are the things that have to happen for the end to come. Must. How about soon? And soon means quickly or suddenly coming to pass. It's not necessarily near in time but it's it's suddenly so when they come they will come quickly in the blink of an eye that's what that word in the greek means and what about must soon take place and again that is the return of christ and judgment the return of christ and judgment that are the thing those are the things that must soon take place and so he said that he is writing about these things that must soon take place He's, doing, he's writing or he's giving this message, this unveiling, uncovering to his servants. Who are his servants? The church. the church. it's us. The Greek word is doulos, which is a bondservant or a slave, and it's one who gives up their will to do the will of another. One who gives up their will to do the will of another. That is a servant. They disregard their personal interests. So if you are a child of God, you are his servant. So this is a message for us. This is a message for us. And again, I reference the, the beatitude, the blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps. Uh, we also see as this book opens, with a beatitude, with a blessing, and it will also close in chapter 22 with a blessing. Charles Ryrie, again quoting him, says that because a blessing is promised to the reader and the hearer, it makes sense that this book should be understandable. If God intended to bless us by reading it and obeying what's written... Doesn't it just make sense that he would give us a message that would be understandable, not something that's mysterious and, and hard or even impossible to understand? Yeah, we shouldn't overcomplicate it. We take it literally. And he says, closes verse 3 with, you know, Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. Does that mean Tomorrow? No, no, it doesn't mean tomorrow. That word for time in the Greek is kairos, and it's an era or an epoch or an age, as opposed to uh, the, the Greek word chronos, which would mean an hour. So in other words, the time is near does not mean that it's coming at 6 p.m. The time is near, meaning that it's the next thing that's going to happen. It's the next age or era. Um, That is when these events will take place again. There is nothing else that we need to be looking for. The next event on God's timeline will be the rapture of his church, which will then kick off the seven-year tribulation. So what do we do with this? As we go through the book of Revelation, as we talk about these end times things, these eschatological things, what do we do with all of this? So we're going to talk about this for a few minutes before we break into our prayer time. But this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to learn and know more about Jesus through what we read about him in this book. So that's one thing that we can accomplish and apply is it will increase our knowledge and hopefully love for Christ as we go through and study. It's a book that tells us about the future. There's going to be a future judgment. There's going to be a defeat of Satan and evil, and Christ will return just as he promised he would do. Joseph Sy said, It's the soul's serenest light amid the darkness and trials of earth, the fact that Satan and evil will be defeated, and Christ will reign victorious. And it should be motivation. It should be motivation. So my question for us to discuss is, motivation to do what? If this is supposed to motivate me, how, how is it supposed to motivate me? What is it supposed to motivate me to do? What is it supposed to motivate us to do? And why? And this is where I get to be quiet and you get to talk. It motivates us to be prepared for the coming of Christ. Be prepared for the coming of Christ. How can we be prepared for his coming? Share the gospel so people can be spared the wrath of God. Absolutely. I think even before sharing the gospel, yeah, I should have prepared ahead of time for this. But there's the parable of the ten virgins, right, that Jesus talked about. And you know, some of them were prepared. And some of them, was it one that was prepared and the others weren't? So be prepared. Though they were working, they were serving. That's part of being prepared, living in obedience, like Grace said. What else should this motivate us to do? Other thoughts? Yeah, focus on Christ, focus on eternal things, not the, the troubles of today. That's good. Yeah, we're going to be reading it every week as I'm teaching, I promise you. And, you know, that's a good point bringing up that. So we talked about this if you were around when we'd studied the Beatitudes a couple of years ago. But this idea of blessed or blessing, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, I've got a, a pile of money waiting on me at home when I get there because I read this aloud today. That's not the blessing. It's merely joy, happiness, contentment. That's this word for blessed. That's what that means. There is joy and contentment in these words, in reading and studying and obeying these words. Last, last chance. Why? What should this motivate us to do? Anybody? We win. We win. That's good news. It's not cause to be arrogant. But it is cause to have joy. In spite of every bad thing that we may be going through, that we may be facing, uh, that we see in the world today, we can still have joy because Jesus is coming. He's coming, and we win. There will be a future judgment. Satan will be defeated, and Christ will return.